For those of you that um, are newer to Soma Eastside, we have been going through the book of James for the last several months, and I heard one commentator call this the kick-you-in-the-butt epistle. For those of you that have read this book, you know what I mean. This is not easy reading or for the faint at heart. Do I hear an amen? I'm just hoping for a little bit of a... I, I agree. And this, morning, and this morning's message is going to be a butt kicker. All right? So I told you in advance. Um, I think it's good for those of you that have studied the Bible, gone to seminary, it doesn't really matter. One of the first things they teach you is... Uh, this idea that context is very, very important. You just can't grab a verse or two in this book particularly, or any book of the Bible, and expect to understand its meaning unless you take the time to gather its context and its historical reference. So, I have done this before, and we're going to do it again. It's been a few weeks since I've done this, and particularly in today's verses I think it's essential that we discuss uh, these things. This is not a new slide that you see. This is the background. Let's remember that the church experienced explosive growth in the book of Acts. And we see that recorded from Acts 1 all the way until Stephen is martyred and in chapter 8. And we see that the apostle, or not that time, Saul, prior to his conversion, oversaw all that. So the church is scattered And frankly, they're afraid. And there's all sorts of issues that are arising as a result of this persecution and this scattering. And so James, the known leader of the church in Jerusalem, is writing a letter to what he calls the scattered tribes of Israel. So at the time, if our timeline is correct, it's somewhere two, three years after the ascension, resurrection of Christ, Uh, this audience, or even the Christian faith in itself, is largely Jewish. Paul hasn't come about yet to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. And so, naturally, the people that he's speaking to, being Jewish, are familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. And you'll see what I mean today as we ponder that. So, I believe the key theme in this verse, in this book, is James 1.19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And we've unpacked this in earlier discussions and sermons. To be quick to listen involves more than just mere listening. Don't just listen to God's Word. Do what it says involves more than just mere morality. Paul or James writes, It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the Scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, but if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. And listening is more than just passive faith, which it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show that by your actions? We also unpacked being slow to speak. 
we learn that the tongue is a dangerous, inconsistent instrument for properly displaying wisdom. It says in 3 verse 10, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. Also, because holy conduct is a safer instrument for displaying wisdom. Then we move on to being slow to get angry. That last of the three instructions from James. Since much of our anger is created by worldliness, he writes in 4.1, What causes fights and quarrels? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? But we also know that this wrath is cured by humility when it brings repentance from sin. He writes, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When it brings a restraint in your speech, if you criticize and judge each other, you are criticizing God's law. And finally, when it brings restraint in your boasting. And Tom, a few weeks ago, unpacked godless planning. So in our plans, your life is like a morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. And then today, we're going to talk about uh, this humility that we should have in our wealth. Now, before we dive into this, I told you already, we've got to buckle up a little bit. I want to uh, conjure up a couple of thoughts, images, and maybe even emotions inside of you. To do that, I've put on the screen warning signs. My favorite one is the top left. Don't you love that one? Hey, there's a cliff coming. Too late. All right, so you see these signs. Now, on top of that, I want you to imagine that a child ignores these things and it's running. Your child is running towards whatever the danger is that it's trying to tell you not to do. You guys feel the emotion right now? Time for a quiz. If someone you love is heading for danger unknowingly, you should, A, don't say anything. It's rude to intrude. It's their life, after all. B, Let them experience the pain. They will learn more from the experience than from me warning them. Remember, this is your child. C, quietly mention the danger and suggest they consider stopping. You don't want to make a scene, after all, and you want to respect their choice. D, yell, scream, tackle them. Make a fool of yourself if you have to in order to get their attention. If I had the time, I would sing like the Jeopardy song. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, now you have four choices before you. All right, church family, which one is it? I can't trick you guys. That's right. If you love someone and you see them in danger and they don't know they're in danger, especially if they're young, innocent, not knowing, you're going to do what you can to stop them. Even if you look like a fool, even if they don't think you have their best, in, their best interests in mind. All right, you got that image? Are you locked and loaded? All right, I warned you. James 5, 1 through 6. 
Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers from whom you have cheated on their pay, the cries of those who harvest your fields. You have reached the ears of the Lord of the uh, heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Tough, isn't it? Did you kind of go like this a little bit? Like, <sighs> Now, James is using, remember this is a Jewish reader audience. He is using uh, prophetic imagery that you'll find in the Old Testament. I grabbed two verses that sort of allude to this. Like, for example, in uh, Joel chapter 1, um, he, uh, Joel writes, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. The same word that James used in 5.1. Or in Jeremiah 4.8, So put on clothes of mourning and weep with broken hearts, for the fierce anger of the Lord is still upon us. And so you see this imagery, this sense of strong warning that is prevalent in a lot of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. But he also does something beyond just the Old Testament prophets. He also is using eschatological or end times announcements from both the Old and even the New Testament. So for example, in Zechariah 14.12, Zechariah writes, And the Lord will send a plague on all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their people will become like walking corpses, their flesh rotting away. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. What a lovely scene, huh? Does that make you squirm a little bit? Even in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes this in his Revelation The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him, that is Christ, on white horses. From his, that is Christ, mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press." Now, by now, if you were a reader of this letter for the first time, James' hope is that he tackles you, he got your attention to speak to the reality of worldly wealth. These are warnings of God's judgment on worldly wealth. And we have three choices here. We can either ignore them to read something like this in James 5 and say, I don't believe it. Or 
we can marginalize them. It doesn't apply to me. Or we can receive them, be sober-minded, and pray in a posture of humility and say, God, how would you have me respond to this? How should I humble myself and receive a word as difficult as this is? Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes, All Scripture, or is it some? All Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I believe we are to receive this word, properly understood, what is God trying to tell us through this passage? Even though it's a Jewish audience, even though a lot of this is Old Testament and eschatological uh, future speakings about wealth, there's something that God wants us to learn from this letter. I find that it's the heart that, that James is after, as God is after The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy this way, People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. I intentionally underlined the word love of money. It's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that's evil. It's the craving. It's the grasping that says, this is mine. Our heart is doing something, whether we like to believe it or not. And in our sin nature, we find ourselves grasping And to the degree that we do, I believe, as is clear in Scripture, that we are, our hearts are wandering from the faith to the degree that we allow such worldly wealth to take control of our lives. And I'm not done yet. I believe God's word pierces all of us. None of us escape this temptation. All of us have to reckon this lure of wealth. Whether you have much, or little. What does Jesus say? It's not about the money. It's about the heart. And you want to get right to the heart of the matter? Read Matthew 6. I put a few verses up to demonstrate. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moss and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. You know how most of us think? Wherever my heart is, that's where my treasure is. Jesus says it's the other way around. Show me your stuff, what you spend your time with, what you dream about. That's where your desires are at. Very uncomfortable. 
It's a litmus test to really determine, are we his, are we in his kingdom, or are we in the kingdom of this world? Are we trying to advance and build his kingdom along with him, or are we trying to build our own kingdom? One says, Lord, lead me with open hands. The other grasps and says, mine. That's the kingdom of this world. And it's contrary to the work that God has in our lives. I wrote a note here. Squirming, uncomfortableness, sweating of the brow. It's fun to watch you guys. Here's something. Just a few verses later. No one can serve two masters, Jesus goes on to say. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. This is not a moral statement. This is the wisdom of God woven in creation. You can't just simply will yourself to do both. It's one or the other. If we, in our desire to enjoy the wealth of this world have our hearts go that direction, that's where our treasure is. You cannot serve God at the same time. It just can't happen, even if you will it to be. It's not a moral statement. It is a reality. Oil and water cannot mix. God and money cannot mix. So, let's examine ourselves, shall we? The Bible says that in 2 Corinthians 13, says we can examine ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. So let's ask these heart questions. And please be honest for your sake. Do you often say mine when referring to your money and your assets? Grasp. Mine. My money. Do you often compare what you have to what others have? That is an activity of the kingdom of this world, and Satan's right behind that. I have been in that situation, and I've repented, and I probably will be in that situation again, and I hope that I repent. Do you not give because you are afraid you won't have enough for yourself. What do you often think or dream about? New house, boat, stuff, or is it family, your children, sharing Christ, finding a better neighborhood, standing up for justice, the things of God that matter? Are you often afraid of losing what you have? Grasp. Mine. And to the degree that we do this, grasp, we are essentially usurping God's sovereignty over our life. Family, I'm not here to kick you in the butt. God's word does a good job of that, doesn't it? I don't need to do that. All these things I'm writing, I've struggled with. 
But we serve a gracious God, don't we? So I wrote down some thoughts. And every one of these I'm about ready to share with you, I have personally experienced, my wife and I. What can you do to uh, temper this propensity we have to grasp, to say mine? I wrote down some things that we've practiced and enjoyed and broke some of the patterns in my own life. I have a giving, we have a giving plan. Know in advance how much you want to give away. Do you give from the top? The Bible calls that tithe. Or at the bottom? Whatever's left over, maybe I'll give some of that away. That's a good litmus test. This will help you think more about others and temper your spending. Have a dream and prayer to give beyond your current means. This will help set your heart to trust the Lord with your increase and commit in advance to give out of your surplus. For about a third of my professional life, I lived solely on commission. And it's tempting when you get that commission check and you're not sure when the next one's coming, you say, you know what, I'm going to hold the whole thing this time. Because next time, I'll have enough and I can give. I did that for a while. And the Lord convicted me. Don't you trust me? I gave you this one. Do you think I'm selling a stop? But in my mind... The world tells me this. I'm not so sure I I will have the next one. I'm going to operate in fear and not faith. So I have a plan. Where can I do? I happen to have a mix between uh, salaried as an employee and as a a contractor. I just, in advance, say, I don't care what it is, when it comes, we're giving off the top, period. It's in a spreadsheet, and I'm a CPA. God help me. <laughs> Have a plan to serve others outside your immediate family. This will help you think of others more often and temper your propensity to think only of yourself. Oh, my goodness. Especially when life was really full. Life's full right now, but we don't have kids and grandkids running around our house every day. Some of you do, and I appreciate that. I understand. But there's something about the gospel living in our lives when we get around people that we're serving that's not in our immediate family. God speaks through that. And oftentimes, he uses those families that you're reaching out to uh, to speak to you about giving of yourself. And to the degree that you do, it's interesting when that happens, you think less of yourself. You find yourself praying more for other people, besides your own immediate needs. It's good to pray for your family. Don't get me wrong. But if that's where it stops, we're missing the kingdom of God. It's about God and then you being entrusted by God to serve others. Have someone or a family in your life that lives with less than you do. This will help you remember that it is God who gave you what you have and encourage you to give thanks more often. Does that make sense? 
It's not like you have to go out and find some family, but I think you should be intentional. Like in this church family, for example, make sure you encounter people, serve people, get to know others that maybe have less than you do. Be around them, befriend them, put them in your life, and watch how much they teach you about being thankful for what you have. Does that make sense? Here's one. Mary Kate just did that this Christmas. For your birthday or Christmas gift, ask those who want to give you something to send it to a charity of your choosing. It will likely be that birthday or Christmas that you will never forget. In a similar fashion, uh, way back in, I'm going to say 2008, seven, right around there, Mary Kate and I were in a real tough financial situation. And we sized it up and said, we just can't, we just can't do anything for Christmas. It is what it is. And so we announced to the kids, and we came up with this idea. It's like, why don't we write a letter to Jesus and then write an encouraging letter to, you pick a name, so we have five in our family, and uh, we wrote a letter of encouragement to each one of them, so everyone got a letter of encouragement from one of our family members. That was like 2008 or nine, somewhere in that range. If you were to ask my kids, who are 33, 31, and 27, what their favorite Christmas was, do you have any idea what, which one it is? They still have those letters. They can't remember last year what they got for Christmas. But they can remember that. Why? Because it seems like when you think beyond yourself, something in the heart becomes less attached to this world and more attached to the kingdom of God, even when you're giving to someone else or it doesn't benefit you personally. Something is happening in your heart. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's training you. Live below your means. Not just to save money, but to help you remember you don't need much to enjoy the life that you have. Do you agree with that? I find, I don't even know if I really set out to say I'm going to outdo the Jones. I don't think we did that. But it is funny how when you get around other people and you, you know, you ever had that feeling you buy a new car? It's like I got the only, you know, red whatever, uh, BMW or whatever, and then all of a sudden you see seven of them that day. And it's interesting how... Uh, how luring this is. Let me tell you something. You can be dead set on following Christ, and it doesn't take much. There's a lure out there. Mary Kay and I, some years ago, we were in California, had a, had a uh, business conference, and um, there was a free night, and the people we were staying with said, hey, this is in Southern Cal, uh, take, our, take my uh, convertible Mercedes I don't, even, I don't even know the numbers, you know, SL, 500, whatever it was. It was, just, it, was, it was a convertible. It was nice weather. And Mary Kay and I got in this car, and we're cruising. And I found myself saying, I can get used to this. You know, we're, we're cruising around, and I'm looking at other cars saying, I didn't have that feeling 20 minutes earlier. Why do I have it now? There's something there. It's luring. And I'm persuaded that Satan is behind all that stuff. He is dragging our hearts away from the kingdom of God. And we have to be aware of it. 
Guard against it. Lastly, don't spend what you don't have. For crying out loud, you will enjoy more what you do have compared to the stress you'll have with the debt you took on to get what you wanted. Do I hear an amen? I mean, isn't that true? I hear, I never owned a boat, but I've talked to enough people that do. There's two great days or favorite days of boat owners. Day one and day two, when you sell it. Everything in between is misery. So I've learned, because that's true, that I just find people that are miserable and have boats and say, hey, can I, I'll pay, I'll pay 100 bucks for gas. I don't have to worry about it. I can just enjoy it. And then I leave, and then they're miserable again. I say that as a joke. For those of you that own boats, that's nothing against you. Although I'm sorry, I feel sorry for you. You know, this is just practical stuff. But please hear me. Um, I've been following Christ for 41 plus years. And money, wealth, is a very luring thing. And I have learned over the course of time, if I were to plot it on a graph, the reality of that, the power of that, is stronger and it doesn't go away. Unless you have a plan that says, I am going to invest in the kingdom of God, in the things of heaven... You're going to, in some form or fashion, drift in that direction. But if you're proactive on some of the things I suggested, I believe your heart can be free to follow Christ, to enjoy Him. Uh, This will be my last chance to speak about James. And I felt, because of how hard this word was this morning, I want to put it back into a context with this graph How do you walk through trials? This is really what James is all about. How do we behave? How do we live in trials? Well, much of the recipients, including us, we sometimes tend to trust in ourselves. And Paul, or if you remember, James is addressing all these things. In our trials, we tend to judge others, we become fearful, we boast in our wealth, in our plans. We identify with the world. And we tend to just talk a lot. We're not doing much action. That's what happens when we don't trust the Lord when times get hard. This letter offers a path that says otherwise. To trust God means you love others. You don't criticize them. You have faith and trust in God. You practice a level of humility. You submit to God, even if it hurts, even if you don't understand it. God's word is above your emotions, above your circumstances. And you act. You don't just talk. You act and you obey. That's the difference. That's what James is really talking about. Now, (laughs) I learned from my wife that she text a few of you all and say, please pray for Pete, because he has to talk about a very difficult passage. So for those that prayed, thank you. You know what I felt at the very end? This, is, this final word is a word about God's discipline, and this is where it got uh, personal for me. 
And like I said, Mary Kay and I, we've been married 38 years. We followed Christ all those years. And I had a strong salvation experience at age 18. So for 41 years, I have followed Christ. And I have learned a thing or two about discipline, the Lord's discipline. I want to share this passage. It's supposed to encourage you, not make you heavy, okay? Hear this out. Hebrews 12, 7 through 12. As you endure divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing what is best for us, what they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I can list a number of sins in my life I didn't even know existed when I came to Christ. Let me tell you one of them. And I don't have time to go more than that. You don't want me to go more than that. I call it the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption is something like this. Life goes on. I make money. I spend. And when I was in in, uh, commission sales, uh, I kind of had to do that to some degree because money comes and goes. Um, I made most of my money in about four months. And the rest kind of trickled in throughout the year. So I spent presuming that whatever I had before would just continue right on. Now, there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's cycles. If you're a farmer, that's just the reality of it. But here's here's where it became a sin. I just made this presumption, spent money that I didn't have. The well goes dry for some reason economy, stupid thinking on my part, whatever it might be. And then suddenly I get angry with God and things start happening and I'm, and I'm going, what, what happened? I mean, I tithe, I do all these things, whatever. And the Lord spoke to me in a very convicting, not condemning, but convicting way. And it hurt. I've, what happened was, a lifetime. I, I grew up in a family that lived this way too. I didn't know any different. How do you know when you're, when you're 12, 13, 15, 18, what's, what other options are there? You take what you learn as a kid, you just go right on living after you get married, and you bring the same habits as you always have. And in doing so, the Lord, in his love for me, unearthed a pattern that was sinful in me that I didn't even know existed. And that's when I realized that sometimes heat has to be applied 
for the impurities to come out. Sometimes God has to see us fail, at least that's what we would call it, when all the while he's rescuing me. He's freeing me. We just don't feel that way. And if our earthly fathers and mothers disciplined us for our own good, the best they knew how, how much more in, in God and his love is doing the same thing and is breaking bones. Even, even David in the, in the Psalms would say, my bones that you have broken rejoice. Being a shepherd, that image was very familiar. When, when sheep run away, guess what the shepherds do? They break the legs, and then they put that lamb with broken legs on the shepherd's shoulder. Why? Yes, to heal, but also to train that sheep to hear the voice. You're very close. You hear the heartbeat of the shepherd. You hear the voice. You, get, you learn the behavior of the shepherd. You may say, well, why did he break my bones? What if he didn't? What if he just let us roam, fall off a cliff? The pain, sorry about that. You'll learn from the pain before my word. No. He's going to discipline us to share in who he is. I would rather, (laughs) I would rather feel the fire of the Holy Spirit, as painful as it is, than to be calloused independent, grasping my own way in this Christian life and never know what I'm missing in God's kingdom. Don't you want that too? Don't you want to fire the Holy Spirit to show you things? Under the banner of that holy work is a love that pursues us, as someone says, like a hound dog from heaven. He will not let us go. And after a while, when you experience that pain, when you experience things that are that way, you begin to learn, he's just loving me. Romans 8, 28, some things, or is it all things work together? All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Over 41 years, 38 of which was shared with Mary Kay, we have learned this discipline of the Lord. It's a good pain for those that know what I mean about working out. Good pain, good pain. And we, we want that, don't we? I don't want to be blind. I don't want to not know these things. I want the Holy Spirit to shine on me, those things that are not good in my life. And over time, when you do that, you tend to understand, like, He is loving me. He is freeing me. He is rescuing me. That's what we want. That's what we need. Now, I don't want to leave you discouraged. In the banner of his love, when this discipline comes, can we just have an image of the cross? The Apostle Paul writes that uh, we know the grace of God, that while uh, him being rich... He became poor so that out of, our, out of his poverty, we can become rich. There's a great exchange here. And we come to the table, 
And this is one of the sacraments that Jesus said to do when we, when we gather. So we're going to do that here in just a moment. Worship band, you can come up. And that is, we want to remember the price that he paid. I, I know sometimes because we do it every Sunday, maybe we miss an impact. But do you understand that, that for us to have life, for us to have joy and peace and all the things that we want in life, he had to die. There was no other choice. We can't have eternal life. It comes from the grave. It comes from death. Death came and then eternal life after that. That death was for you and I. He took it on. When you come to that table, I encourage you to remember the death of Jesus Christ, a necessity. Isaiah 53 actually says, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. I want you to feel the weight of that, not to feel down, but to be in awe of the love of God. That same love, that banner of love where that discipline comes, that oftentimes is painful. It's the same love that says, we're going to work on this. We're going to, we're going to deal, I'm going to put some fire in here. I'm going to make it hurt, but watch what happens. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Come to the table as we pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It was a hard word, but we don't want to lose the idea that it was out of great love for us that you sent your son and that your word is given to instruct, reprove, all under the banner of your love. We receive it that way with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you in a moment to come and take of the elements.